Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Terror in Wichita. Terror in Wichita by Paul F. Carancy is the story of two siblings who committed egregious acts of horror on innocent people. The story, an hour-by-hour accounting of the events, will bring you into the minds of the killers. It will bind you to the victims, causing you to live and relive the horrific events in those nine days in December. It will introduce you to a woman of extraordinary courage, one who refused to become another casualty at the hands of two soulless monsters whose greed, lust, and total disregard for the value of human life led to one of the most heinous and ghastly string of attacks and murders imaginable. Um, good morning. I'm here with uh, a repeat customer here uh, on Murder Most Foul, Paul Carancy, here on our other uh, a pet past podcast, which I hope you all listen to, uh, the author of The Hanging and Redemption of John Gordon, a local story here in Rhode Island. This one is not local. Oh, first of all, good morning, Paul. Good morning, Jim. The book we're going to talk about and the case that, it's, that springs from it, uh, Terror in Wichita, and subtitled, as all good books are, A True Story of One Woman's Courage and Her Will to Live. Um, so let's, um, and again, this case has, it's, it's very disturbing because murders, it obviously involves murders and multiple murders in this case. Um, but the, um, uh, the details, the, um, torture that led up to the, the only way to term them executions of the victims, um, is probably, um, as bad as anything I've read to date. And believe me, I've read a lot of things. So um, Paul, take us, uh, uh, discuss a little bit about the two um, murderers. And um, later we will talk about their background. I don't want to get into that now. I don't want to muddy the waters with, yes, they were troubled children, et cetera. Uh, that's for, uh, you know, head shrinkers, not me. So let's just talk about what, um, what they did and give us a, a time frame. What, when did this happen? This happened in December of the year 2000 and um, two brothers by the name of Jonathan, Jonathan and Reginald Carr, C-A-R-R, um, who grew up in Wichita, um, decided to go on a, um, a spree, crime spree where they would not necessarily engage in murder. I don't think that was uh, in their plans at all. But they devised this plan to simply uh, follow and carjack um, new expensive cars. And 
force the driver or the owner to take them to uh, ATMs where they could then withdraw what they figured would be thousands of dollars from their bank accounts. Um, and then they planned to just abandon the car and the, the owner someplace where they couldn't get to the police right away while they uh, you know, escaped. And um, the plan was uh, initially, the, on the very first try, working to perfection. They, um, they carjacked uh, uh, an SUV uh, that was um, parked on the side of a convenience store. The owner went inside to get, uh, to get some goods from the store. And when he came out, he got back in his car and, and um, one of the brothers approached him with a gun forced him into the passenger seat. He got in the driver's seat, uh, drove to a location where the other brother was waiting. Uh, that brother got in the passenger seat, forcing the uh, owner of the car into the uh, back seat. Um, and just for good measure, hit him a couple of times in the head with the gun, uh, with the butt of the gun. Um, I think just to um, scare him and, and keep him in line so he wouldn't try anything foolish. Um, they didn't wear masks or anything. Um, I guess to be a, a, a criminal, you, you don't necessarily need a high IQ. Um, so we didn't wear masks. Uh, so the people could plainly see their faces. And um, they did uh, tell them or instruct them under pains of being pistol whipped not to look at their faces. But, you know, it was inevitable. So uh, they took this one person to... Um, uh, an ATM, a couple of ATMs actually, to withdraw some money. They got a, a few hundred dollars and then they took him in the car on a joyride uh, trying to figure out what to do next. I, I don't think they had fully developed their plan of action at that point. After they got the money, what are they going to do? They drove around, they ended up at a car wash and, and some other places where they you know, continued to hit him uh, with the gun just to um, keep him in line, forced him to lay face down in the back seat. Eventually, took him to a secluded wooded area, where they um, proceeded to um, ask him. <laughs> this is a um, interesting because it, I think it shows that they really had no intention of committing any kind of murder. Uh, they asked him if he had a spare tire. He said yes, he did, and then they put three bullets into the front tire of the uh, the rear tire of the car of the SUV. Um, so that he couldn't, you know, chase them right away. And then um, they told him to stay there for a while. Uh, they would throw his keys in the street. So, you know, again, giving him the opportunity to get home. Um, and then they took off. So he got up, he found his keys in the street, and he drove with the flat tire to the police department and reported the whole thing. He gave a fairly good description of one of the brothers, the one that initially approached him. But um, because they had no uh, recent arrest records, um, the description didn't mean much to the police at that point. And that was that. They were satisfied for a few days and they really didn't do anything else. Then... Uh, on the 15th of December, they tried again, and they followed a woman who was coming out of her, uh, she was um, a player with the symphony in Wichita, and she was coming out of rehearsal, and she also had an expensive car. She noticed that they were following her, 
it was at night, so the lights, you know, were on on the cars, and um, it wasn't hard to see that this same set of headlights was was trailing you. So she called her daughter and asked her daughter to open the garage door. Uh, when she got there, she pulled right into the garage and closed the door. Uh, the Carr brothers didn't stop, but they, they saw her go into the garage of a what was a triplex condominium building. So there were three units uh, attached. She had one of the end units. And they drove around the block a few times, and then they came back. And when they came back, and um, since the brothers uh, didn't obviously didn't know the name of the person they were they were stalking, um, they just you know randomly rang a doorbell, which turned out not to be the woman they were following. Uh, isn't that correct? Happened to be the wrong unit. It was the middle unit, not the end unit, that they were ringing the bell to. And one of the five people in that house unfortunately answered the door, and they forced themselves in. It was uh, about 11 o'clock-ish at night when, when that happened. Um, in the house, there were five young people, all uh, aged between 25 and I think 27 or 29. Um, three three uh, guys lived there together. They had been uh, friendly in college, and they all lived there. Um, Brad Haker, let me get the names right, uh, Jason B. Fort, Brad Haker, and Aaron Sander were the three uh, people that lived there. Now, visiting that night was Jason Beefort's girlfriend, and she's identified in court records only as HG. Those are her initials. And uh, Heather Mueller, um, who was a former girl, um, girlfriend of Aaron Sanders. And... Um, but Aaron Sanders, while they were dating, decided that uh, he felt a call to the priesthood. So he, he, they, they stopped dating. He uh, was studying to be a priest. And Heather uh, was actually considering becoming a nun. Uh, she was very active in the church. In fact, I just left a uh, rehearsal for a church event when she was um, you know, coming over to the house. So uh, those are the five people who were there. Um, they had just gone to bed when uh, the Carr brothers rang the bell. All of the bedrooms except one were um, upstairs. Uh, the one that was downstairs answered the door and they, they forced themselves in at gunpoint. They um, made, the, made him tell them who else was in the house uh, and then led them to the bedroom where um, H.G. and Jason were. <clears throat> they um, pushed, um, I think it was, who was it, Brad, that uh, answered the door. So they pushed Brad onto the bed. Now the three of them, H.G., uh, uh, Jason, and Brad are all on the bed and um, demanded to know who else was in the house. Uh, the other occupants or the other um, people that were at the house were identified at that point and rounded up. And um, one was in the basement, one was in the adjacent bedroom. <clears throat> they brought them all into that bedroom. Um, the Cobb brothers discussed for a little while what they were going to do and then decided to uh, force all five people to strip naked 
and um, get in the closet. So they put all five in this very small closet that was only a foot deep by about five or six feet wide. Uh, five naked people in there. They had pulled all the car uh, brothers pulled all the clothes out of the closet and threw them on the bed to make some room. So the five of them are in the closet. And the Carr brothers continued to discuss what their plan's going to be. And they decided they wanted to get some kicks before they get down to business of uh, going to the ATMs. So they, um, they called the two women out of the closet, forced them to uh, have sex with each other. Uh, it was a fairly prolonged act and, or acts. And then they put one of the women uh, back in the closet. Uh, Heather went back in the closet. They left uh, HG out. They um, then called one of the men out and forced him to have sex with HG. Um, when he couldn't perform under those kind of uh, stressful situations, they um, put him back in the closet, took out the second one, second male, forced him to have sex, turned out to be uh, the boyfriend of HG. They realized, the Cobb brothers realized that and, and laughed about it, said you can't force him to have sex with us. So they put him back in the closet, took out the third one and um, forced him to have sex with HG when he couldn't perform under the uh, stress of the situation, they beat him with a golf club uh, on the back. And uh, then they forced him to have sex with her anyway, which he, he did, and then put him back in the closet, took out the other guy again, the first one, forced him to. And this went on for about two to three hours. Then they decided they would get down to the business why they got there and go to the ATM. So they started with one. They left four in the closet with one of the gunmen at the house watching the closet. And one of the gunmen drove or sat in the passenger seat, made um, the first victim drive to the ATM, pulled out about $1,000 out of the ATM and, and headed back home. And during that time, the, the brother that stayed at home um, decided to have sex with HG. So um, that went on probably for another half hour. At this point, I think the three uh, men that were left in the closet probably could have left the closet because um, the gunman and HG were in a different room having sex um, or being raped, I guess is the better word. And uh, they probably could have came out of the closet, jumped out a window and went next door for help. But I think they were just too frightened to even attempt that. So they never came out of the closet and they probably weren't even sure if the uh, gunman was still in the bedroom or out of the room at that point. Um, but anyway, uh, the second gunman returned home, switched hostages, uh, forced another one to go to the ATM, um, again, uh, the, the gunman that stayed at home decided to have sex with the other girl at this point. Um, and he raped her repeatedly. And uh, they came, the um, second gunman and, and the person that went to the ATM returned home after about a half hour again. And um, this went on, you know, over and over until all five had gone to the ATM. 
um, at various times while one was away, the other would be either involved in rape or forcing uh, one of the men to rape one of the women and beating him with the golf club if he didn't do it. So um, I'd say about uh, two and a half hours later, they returned. They had all the money they could get. Um, they continued, the two brothers continued to have sex with the two women and rape them, uh, repeatedly switching partners a couple of times. Um, they did use condoms, so they were careful not to leave any DNA evidence in, in that sense. They um, did clean the house very carefully with disinfectants um, everywhere they had gone and, and touched or, or, or raped the women. Um, so they were very careful in that sense, but they didn't, again, didn't mask their face at all. So they were easily identified by the five, and, and you kind of got the sense as this was going on that they, they had to kill them at the end because there was just too much uh, potential for identification. So when they were all done, they had all the money, they actually um, along the way found a uh, jar of, of coins that, uh, that um, Jason had left next to his bed. And underneath that jar of coins was a little tin. And inside that tin was a diamond engagement ring that he had planned to give to HG at Christmas time. Um, so they found the ring and they, they went and, and asked the, uh, the men who it belonged to, and it was identified as uh, Jason's. And then they um, asked if he had any more jewels around or, or expensive things. Uh, they had given up their watches and things like that at that point, but <clears throat> no, they had no more diamonds or any, anything else like that. So um, now they had to you know, execute their plan. So they took them into the garage and they initially planned to stuff all five of them into the trunk of the, um, I think he had a, a, a Nissan or a Toyota, but it was a relatively small car and uh, they couldn't fit all five of them in there. So they put the three men, uh, again, they're all naked now. Uh, it had snowed about uh, two or three inches worth prior night and into the, this morning. By now it had, it's about maybe about two o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the morning. It had stopped snowing, but the freshly fallen uh, two inches of snow or three inches was on the ground and it was 17 degrees. So it was pretty cold outside. These are completely naked people. The two girls managed to each grab a sweater as they were being let out. So they did put a sweater on. That's the only article of clothing they had. The men were completely naked. Men were in the trunk when they couldn't fit the women in there. They put one in the passenger seat of the pickup truck that they were stealing from uh, Brad. I think Brad. And the other one uh, they put in the passenger seat of the car, their own car that they had uh, taken. And they drove off to this um, secluded site. It was a soccer field under construction. And it was still uh, surrounded by wooded area. And it was well off the highway. So they took them there, they forced them, the three men to get out of the trunk and to kneel in front of the car. They then um, took the two women and forced them to kneel as well. One, uh, Heather took her position next to her boyfriend. Uh, so she was now the first person in, in the line from left to right. Then the three men and Heather took her position next to her uh, boyfriend or I should say Heather's ex-boyfriend, and then um, HG took her position next to her boyfriend. Uh, 
and all five of them kneeling in the snow. I can't imagine the terror that was running through all of their minds at that moment. They, they had to know what was coming next. One by one, the Cobb brothers um, shot them execution style in the back of the head. When they got to HG, however, she had, uh, in preparing to, to go to bed, put her hair up in a clip, um, kind of in a, a bun type setting, in a, in a clip, hair clip, plastic hair clip. Well, the bullet deflected off that plastic hair clip and didn't penetrate her skull. It did um, hit her skull and it, it fractured her skull and she was bleeding profusely from that wound but it didn't penetrate the skull, so there was no brain damage and she didn't die. In fact, um, after she was shot, she continued to kneel and one of the brothers had a kicker with his boot, uh, so she fell into the snow and still had the presence of mind to turn her head so she wouldn't fall face down in the snow where she'd be un unable to breathe. Uh, she turned her head so that um, you know she could see the road and breathe she tried to keep her breathing very shallow because uh, she didn't want them to know she was alive. And then she heard the truck start up um, before she you know, could figure out what they were doing. She felt the truck roll over her back. They, uh, they actually ran over all five of the victims as they lay in the snow. Um, so two tires, the front and back tire of uh, passenger side of the truck ran over both of all of them. And, when she heard, she was still conscious at this point, and when she heard that the truck was out of um, earshot, uh, she, she looked, you know, she turned her head slightly so she could see that they were at the end of the road getting back onto the highway. She could see the taillights of the truck. And that's when she decided to get up. She uh, checked the others. She, um, she felt that two of them were dead. She thought there was life in two of them. Her boyfriend was bleeding from the um, head wound. The blood was still squirting out of his head. And um, he was bleeding from the eyes. But she felt because the blood was squirting, she was, he was still alive. The heart was still pumping. So she took off her sweater and she tied it around his head like a tourniquet. And then she looked around and she saw some lights on at a nearby airport, one of the uh, airport for small planes. But she figured at this time of the morning, it was about 2 o'clock now, nothing would be open. So she looked around, saw some Christmas lights on, uh, on a residential development. So she decided to run for that. So she got up and she started to run. And every time she would see uh, headlights coming in her direction, she would dive into the snow and kind of bury herself in the snow because she was afraid it was the assailants coming back. And um, she, that happened a total of four times along the way. Now, um, imagine this. She's, she's bleeding from the head. Pretty, pretty significant uh, amount of blood loss. She is bleeding from other parts of her body, from the rape and, and the abuse that, that she had earlier in the night. And she comes to a fence, uh, probably a six-foot-high chain-link fence topped with barbed wire. And that fence is separating the soccer field land from the highway. She climbs completely naked, so she's got no shoes on. She climbs the fence, jumps over the uh, barbed wire topping, tearing apart her, you know, the rest of her body. 
climbs down the fence onto the highway side, crosses the highway. There's another fence on that side, climbs up that fence over the barbed wire, slides down the other side of that, ripping up the rest of her body, and then um, continues to run 1.2 miles to the house where she saw the lights. Um, she ran onto the porch and, and banged on the door, and when they answered the door, she said she had just been um, attacked, that uh, they killed her four friends, and um, she wanted to call the police before she died herself. So bleeding from basically everywhere now. She called, they called 911. She's talking so fast to the, the man who owned the house that he you know, pretty much couldn't understand her. So he just put her on directly with the 911 dispatcher. She was able to give a description of uh, where they were and where the bodies were, <coughs> of um, what had happened to her. She described in detail the two men that did it and what they were driving. And then she passed out. Paramedics arrived at the same time that uh, other police and uh, investigators were going to the soccer field and finding the bodies all four of them dead at that point, although they called in uh, four code blues, hoping that somebody might survive. Um, nobody did. And then except HG, who uh, was revived, taken to the hospital and um, treated for the lacerations and the head wound and, and the um, vaginal tears. And uh, then she was um, questioned again given you know, a more detailed description than she had given to the 911 dispatcher. Um, her, her description of, of the assailants was so precise that within two hours, <clears throat> the first one was arrested. Two hours later, the second one was arrested. Now again, these weren't people of uh, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary intelligence. They didn't have a high IQ. Uh, so they made a lot of foolish mistakes. When they left the crime scene, they went back to the house uh, that they started from, <clears throat> and they stole whatever they could steal that was loose. Uh, the large screen TV, it was a 56-inch screen TV. They took that, and then they took uh, the jar of coins and a lot of small stuff. And um, one went to his girlfriend's house, and the other... Uh, the other went to his girlfriend's house. Um, th the first one didn't go to his girlfriend's house. He went to a friend's house. His girlfriend lived out of state, and he was planning, or at least he told this female friend, that he was planning to leave Wichita to go see her. And he had taken his money out of the bank, and that explained the water money he had in his pocket. And um, he said that he was with his brother who had a fight with his girlfriend, and uh, the girlfriend turned out to be married. The husband came home, caught them, and started shooting at uh, the brother. And that's why they both left. And he had some belongings that belonged to his sister that he needed to store for a while. Um, and that explained where we got the stolen goods or how we got the stolen goods. The descriptions went out over the airwaves. The press, because these two were still at large at this point, the press um, covered it extensively. 
uh, in reports on all the news, uh, you know, the morning news, the afternoon news. And um, it wasn't long before people saw their pickup truck and, uh, you know, were able to say, hey, the, the truck that you said was stolen is here. And um, they followed, one of them put the 56 inch TV screen on a blanket and dragged it across the snow from the parking lot where the car was to the apartment building. So the police were able to follow it right to the apartment building. Um, even uh, they had asked somebody to help them carry it up to the door of the apartment. So they even knew what apartment they were in. So they, they got them pretty quickly. And they got the second one shortly after that. But uh, they, they went on trial uh, two years, roughly two years later, I think in uh, September of uh, the second year after the incident. Uh, the trial comes up and they had uh, made a decision the, the justice system had made a decision to try both of them together instead of separating the trials out so they were both convicted and the uh, star witnesses of course for the prosecution were andrew schreiber who was the uh, first victim that survived and uh, of course hg the only two living victims that they had in their crime spree. Um, both testified, both identified one brother, Reginald, with extraordinary accuracy, but they were both unable to identify Jonathan. Fortunately for them, and unfortunately for the Carr brothers, Jonathan left plenty of semen and other DNA evidence at the house uh, so they were able to put him at the crime scene and attach him to the rapes and whatnot so that um, both were convicted. Both were given uh, four, um, four counts that required execution. Or the, the jury gave them execution. The jury actually voted on the penalty. So on four counts, they were to be executed. On one count, they received life imprisonment. And then on all the other charges, including animal cruelty, cruelty because they did kill H.G.'s dog. Um, when they went back to the house to rob it, the dog was trying to bite at their ankles, so they, they killed it with a golf club. Um, yeah, they didn't shoot it. They hit it with a golf club so severely that they separated the, the uh, head from the spine, and then they um, stuck a sharp object, not sure what, into the neck. Um, so the dog was also dead, and they got... Uh, they got another 47 years for animal cruelty and, and the um, robberies and things like that. So they were pretty much gone. Uh, but after it was all done, the Kansas Supreme Court got involved and um, overturned the death sentences because uh, they said there were two errors made. One was uh, the trial trials shouldn't have been held together. It should have been separated for the two brothers. And the second one was the uh, judge didn't adequately instruct the jury. So that was appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the lower court erred in its decision that the original trial judge had no obligation to instruct the jury differently than he did and that holding the trials together was permissible because the facts of the case were so similar uh, for the two of them. So the brothers are still sitting on death row. Uh, it's 21 years later, coming on 21 years now. It'll be 21 years in December of this year. Uh, 
Um, and uh, they're still sitting on death row awaiting execution. And although it, it is hard to fathom or belief after this horrendous um, crime that some happiness did uh, come out of it, didn't it? H.G. and the, the first victim of the carjacking, Andrew Shriver, uh, met at the uh, trial. They both testified. Um, and shortly after the trial, uh, they must have had an attraction. They started dating. And um, shortly after that, they got married. They've now been married for almost 20 years. They have two children. They moved about 140, 150 miles outside of Wichita, still in Kansas. And um, 10 years after the uh, events, and somewhere around 2010, um, H.G., was, uh, who was a teacher by profession, was actually uh, named Teacher of the Year in her uh, school district and um, was uh, awarded that, uh, that honor. Um, to me, it's just absolutely amazing how after having been through the events that, that she experienced, was able to survive it all, but was able to do the things she did. I mean, uh, the thought of running naked in, in the snow in 17 degree weather uh, for 1.2 miles, bleeding from everywhere, and jumping two fences that are topped with barbed wire, and then getting to the house and still being able to give such an accurate description of the events and the assailants is extraordinary. But then, after experiencing this trauma, to be able to go out and, and not suffer from the, the, well, I shouldn't say not suffer from, but maybe suffer from PTSD that uh, usually will accompany some kind of catastrophic event like that, but not make it a debilitating uh, issue and still be a good enough teacher to become teacher of the year and, and um, you know, sustain the marriage and their two kids and just extraordinary, remarkable coverage. Coverage, I think more so than the horrors of the event. This book is, you know, a, a, an attempt to highlight that coverage um, because that is what I think separates this from other typical crime stories. Um, there's a lot of horrific crime stories, but to find this kind of coverage in the face of them, I thought was extraordinary. And um, to be clear, I understand that the uh, school district that gave H.G. the award did not know about her past um, when they gave it to her. Is that correct? Law in Kansas that prevents the identification of a surviving witness of this kind of event, whether it's rape, murder, or, or whatever, attempted murder, if there's a survivor, the law says the person can only be identified, even in court and trial records, as uh, by the initials of the person's name. So H.G. is known as H.G. Her name was never used in the trial records. And when she moved 170 miles away, uh, the school jurisdiction for which she worked had no way of knowing that this was the same person that was involved in those events. And yet she won uh, the Teacher of the Year Award um, which is another testament to her extraordinary work ethic and her ability to get beyond the, the trauma of these events. Um, she wasn't given the award out of sympathy or pity. Uh, it was truly earned.
penalty phase of the case, the defense addressed the violent and abusive childhood the two brothers had experienced, the violence they witnessed growing up, the abandonment, beatings, deprivation they endured at the hands of those they trusted and loved was was their defense. So the, the Cobb brothers at a very early age, in fact, um, as far back as they can remember, uh, were abused by pretty much everybody in their family. They didn't have a father around, but their mother, um, you know, she, she uh, worked sometimes and, and she left them with other people who abused them. The mother herself abused them. Um, you know, and it started with small things, you know, punishments um, that were excessive. Uh, when they were bad, they were forced to strip naked and beaten with, stra with uh, straps. Um, uh, they were um, exposed to alcohol, drugs, and sex most of their life. Uh, they were uh, left in the house when the mother was having sex with people and um, you know, they, they could wander in and out to watch and, and nobody objected to that. And it was just a horrible setting for a child. And by the time that uh, the older brother, Reginald, was, um, I think, five or six, he was, uh, when he was five, he was groping his cousin. When he was six, he was having intercourse with his cousin on a regular basis. Um, think about that, six years old. Um, when he was uh, you know, in his early preteens, maybe 11, 12 years old, he was selling drugs. And by the time he was 12 or 13, his mother was one of his best customers. Um, he was um, you know, abused by people that came into the house with the mother, uh, mother's boyfriends and whatnot, and other family members, aunts, um, both of them were. Um, they never really had a chance. At one point, they moved so much that um, Reginald was in, by the eighth grade, eight different schools. Um, obviously, no interest in school at that point, and he dropped out when he was uh, 16 in, in uh, 12th grade. Um, I'm sorry, the 10th grade. He was a sophomore in high school. He dropped out. Um, clearly, they were just being promoted from grade to grade, uh, not based on um, academic achievement, probably more just to get them out of the class. Um, and, uh, you know, the life was, by all observations, as horrible a life as you can get. Now, that's not an excuse because a lot of people have a bad life and some people just choose to make something of themselves despite that. Uh, the Carr brothers weren't among them. Um, so they decided to get into petty crimes when they were very young from selling drugs and having, uh, you know, sexual relations and things and stealing and, and whatnot from a very young age. And this just became what they knew. And I don't think that they even thought it was wrong. It's just how they grew up. Uh, clearly they knew that murder was wrong. One of the, um, uh, not one of the brothers, the two brothers had a cousin that was killed uh, and he was a gang member and he was only like uh, 15 or 16 years old, shot in the head execution style. So they, they knew that kind of thing was wrong. I don't think they thought that there was anything wrong with uh, free sex or, you know, taking what you want when you want it. Um, it didn't really make a good defense, um, although it's a compelling story and you can feel for them. Uh, it doesn't excuse in any sense what happened and what they did. Um, 
And I think the jury saw right through it when they gave them four death sentences and a life sentence. I do want to end um, on a note of how amazing H.G. was and her strength, um, not only of self-survival, but as it was re as recounted in your book, one of her big goals was to survive long enough to help the police catch the people who possibly would have ended up that ended up killing her, but certainly she knew killed uh, her uh, her friends, and. Um, all through it, before even that point where she had to crawl through the snow to survive, she had her wits about her, and she knew what she had to do uh, when you know with these guys to to make the chances of her survival uh, more possible. She had made a decision early on to survive this, um, and she reaffirmed that decision in her own mind when she was uh, kneeling in the snow at the soccer field. But she, um, she resolved to do whatever she had to do and say whatever she had to say, uh, not to upset them and, and to get through this ordeal. So, uh, you know, they asked, he asked if uh, she enjoyed it, if she'd ever been with a black man before. And she said, no. And was it better than with your boyfriend? And she said, yes. And he said, you don't have to lie to me. And, um, you know, then he asked, he said, too bad we didn't meet under other circumstances. You're kind of cute. We probably could have got along. And and she gave a sarcastic remark at that point. And he said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, I'm not having a good time. I mean, she just had excellent recall and still had some wits about her to, to be able to, you know, uh, respond snockily back at, at, at his comment. So, um, yeah, she's an extraordinary woman. Well, thank you, Paul. Um as I said, I'd like to say this was an interesting um, uh, hour here, but uh, it was very informative. I think it's important. Uh, you, you've said it well yourself that the important part of the story, unfortunately, you've got to give the grueling details to make the survival uh, mean what it means. Um, again, the book, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is Terror in Wichita, a true story of one woman's courage and her will to live by Paul F. Carancy. And you can just Google Paul and come up to his author's page. He has other books there. Uh, one that unfortunately, I'll, I would have to really twist my podcast to move to fit it in, but he has an, I'll just leave it, I'll tease you. He has an interesting uh, book written about something that he did in his life uh, here in Rhode Island. I believe it's called Wired. Yes called Wired, and then has a subtitle. Just go to his site, check that out. You'll be amazed. There's interviews on there, local news interviews, that give you a good, a good taste of, of what it was like to do what he did. So again, I want to thank you, Paul. Uh, stay safe and have a great day. Thanks so much, Jim. It was a pleasure and uh, hope to do it again one day. I'd like to close out the podcast with some words directly from HG and accepting her award is teacher of the year, she told reporters and fellow educators that she was honored to be recognized in such a way. Children have an innocence about them that is not found anywhere else, H.G. said. It's nice to be able to come to work and to have their view of the world surround me instead of the cynical view that most adults have.
Well, folks, I'd like to thank you all for joining me today on Murder Most Foul. I invite you to go to my website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. There you can link to my email. I'd love to hear your comments, both pro and con. And if there's any subject matter you'd like me to cover, I'd be be honored to look into it. Uh, in the meantime, uh, please stay safe. And until next time.